And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow in the order of worship. The whole psalm is printed there. By the way, I want to welcome my mom to worship on the front rows. Always good to have mom pop in. It was a pop-in. Didn't know she was coming. But my security is unshaken. (laughs) Psalm 114. uh, Before Jesus was born, the great salvation act, the great salvation event of God's people was the exodus. And one way that you see that is when you read in in the Old Testament that constantly after the exodus, it is referred back to. God's people will refer back to it. God will refer back to it as, you know, you remember what I did. You saw what happened, or at least your, your ancestors saw what happened. It is the great salvation event of the Bible before Jesus is born. Now, this psalm that we're about to look at, the psalmist obviously has that on his mind and in his heart. And there are quite a few places in the psalms like this. But here's what I want you to think about. As, as the psalmist is reveling in how amazing God is, and he's writing a psalm, he doesn't really talk to us so much as he talks to earth. I just want you... Because this, this is going to be very important as we, as we look at this psalm. He's not so much saying, Hey, think about how amazing God is. Think about how powerful God was. Look at what He did for all these people. He really, for the most part, is talking to water and hills and rock. What, as He does that, what is He showing us about God? Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've just heard that psalm, it sounds like the psalmist is overwhelmed with who you are and amazed at who you are. And right now, it it is very likely that that is not how we feel or how we think. Maybe even if we are trying to feel that way or think that way, we, we feel very, very indifferent. So as we pray Sunday after Sunday, would you now give us ears to hear that not only we might hear rightly, but it might have its way with the real us, our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, there's a good book on prayer came out not too long ago that I would recommend to you. And uh, it's by a writer named Paul Miller. 
The name of the book is A Praying Life. A Praying Life. Good book on prayer. There's a section in this book where Paul Miller talks about, um, you know, you think about what are, what are obstacles to being a person who prays? And, you know, we could talk about busyness or lack of discipline or whatever, but he hits on one that is a, a very important obstacle that we might not think to address, and it's cynicism. And cynicism, uh, and I, when I, as I say, this is my little preface here, a little disclaimer, I don't like statements like, this culture is more fill-in-the-blank than any other culture ever. I just, I typically don't believe that. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. But it is fair to say, we're at a cultural moment that is riddled with cynicism, kind of skepticism, sort of the whatever response to everything. Now, listen to what he says. He's talking about cynicism in prayer. He says, because cynicism sees what is really going on. He puts those in quotation marks. Because cynicism sees what is really going on, it feels real, authentic. That gives cynicism an elite status since authenticity is one of the last remaining public virtues in our culture. And that's really, I think that's really accurate because you, if you know someone who is very cynical, you may, like, let's say it's a you know, um, it. <laughs> let's say this person is a female. You might think, well, you know, okay, she's kind of a Debbie Downer. And she kind of sees through everything. But at least she's honest. You know, it kind of ends up still being a virtue, even if this person's not fun to vacation with. At least they, she calls it like she sees it. Now, actually, Paul Miller, he talks about a friend of his, Kathy, who was actually struggling with cynicism, felt the struggle. And here's what she said. She said, It is easier for me to feel skepticism and nothing than to feel deep passion. When I read those words, I thought, I think I might be more cynical than I thought. It's easier to feel skepticism or feel nothing than to feel deep passion. And she says, so cynicism takes root and it feels more real to me than truth. I know that I'm not alone in my struggle with cynicism, but most of us are not aware that it is a problem or that it's taking hold in our hearts. It just feels that we can't find the joy in things like we are too aware to trust or hope. Like, I used to trust, I used to hope, and then I wisened up. Now, you would think in a book on prayer that then what he's going to say about cynicism is what? Well, we got to get to praying. You know, if we're cynical, we got to get to praying, we got to pray about our cynicism, and then listen to what he says. If you add an overlay of prayer to a cynical or even weary heart, it feels phony. Thank you, Paul Miller, for honesty. For the cynic, life is already phony. You feel as if you are just contributing to the mess. Very insightful. Now, the reason I'm, I'm going from you know, this psalm about the Exodus to thinking about cynicism is... If, if you look at the range of how we might respond to anything or anyone, I don't know exactly what is at the very end of the spectrum, or the ends of the spectrum, but if trembling is way out here, what's the opposite pole? And cynicism has got to be pretty far down there. Whether you call it cynicism, or indifference, or skepticism, or seeing through everything and everybody... 
But a lot of where we are, I mean, like this morning as we're walking in, is almost the opposite of where the psalmist is. So it can feel fake. Now, here's, again, here's the amazing thing. Does the psalmist, whoever the psalmist was, in Psalm 114, is he coming to us saying, I just want you to see how amazing God is. God is amazing. No, in fact, he's hardly talking to us. He refers to people, but primarily he's talking to earth, river, sea, hills, mountains. How can this be helpful to us? If, if we ought to be people who tremble and we're way over here, it is not going to help us for me to come along and say, well, we ought to be amazed with God. So let's close in prayer. That, that just does not help. How does the psalmist help us in Psalm 114? I want to look at two things. What is he showing us about God and his earth? And the second thing, what is he showing us about God and his people? What is he showing us about God and his earth? What is he showing us about God and his people? First off, um, what about God and the earth? It's a pretty common device. You know, there's different literary devices. I'm very impressed that Jason Cornwell used the word synecdoche in leading worship. Very impressive. Uh, Different, you know, different genres, different devices. One thing that you bump into a lot in the Psalms, you even get this in the prophets, is it'll personify the earth as if the earth or parts of the earth need to join with us in worshiping God. Like, I'm going to read just one uh, quick little example. This is from Psalm 98. And there's tons of examples like this. But it says in Psalm 98, Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Now, the sea does roar, but not everything in the sea roars. Like, plankton don't roar. But he's saying everything in the sea roar. The world roar, and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Now, if you are amazed by God, that language resonates with you. If you, if you feel spiritually cold and flat, you keep feeling that way. In fact, it, it almost makes you want to walk outside and kind of you know, I look at the Reedy River and go, no, it doesn't. You know, or kind of look up toward Table Rock and go, no, it doesn't. But here's what, okay, Psalm 114 is not using that device. At least not in the same way. Because it's not talking about the earth figuratively doing this. Psalm 114 is talking about when the earth actually did this. Physically literally did this. Now, the references may be a little bit more unknown to us because we tend to not, we tend to not navigate the Old Testament well, but any Israelite would have known exactly what the psalmist was referring back to, primarily to the events of the Exodus. Now, where, where do you see that? Look in verses 3 through 6. It says, The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills like lambs. Now, this kind of covers a lot of ground, so let me see if I can sum this up. He, he, he talks to water, he refers to water, and he refers to mountains and hills. What were, what were these miracles where a sea fled from God and where the Jordan River fled from God? And really, those, those water miracles, you might call them, they're sort of bookends of God's people in the wilderness. 
when God's people were slaves in Egypt and they came out, that's what the exodus means, they, they exited, came out of Egypt, and they went through the Red Sea. And for the rest of Scripture, that is never referred to as a mythic point. It is always referred to as historic narrative that actually happened in front of a ton of eyewitnesses. That's on the front end. Then you get these 40 years in the wilderness, and then when God's people, it's really their children, when they go into the promised land, what's the boundary where we're leaving the wilderness and we're coming into the land promised to us? It's the Jordan River. When they crossed the Jordan, there was another parting of water. It says that when they came to the Jordan River, that the water piled up, upriver, so that the whole congregation of Israel could pass through. And he refers to that. He says, what that really was, was the Red Sea recoiling from its maker, fleeing back from its maker. It wasn't just, poof, parlor trick. It was the sea almost terrified of God and backing up. The Jordan River piling up at the presence of God. Now, those are the water miracles. Now, God has made hills and areas and parts of the earth shake before, but, but the definitive one that this psalm would have made an Israelite think of was what? It's Mount Sinai. And it says in Exodus 19, that's the chapter before the Ten Commandments, when it describes this just kind of typical Judean mountain... Uh, or, or Middle Eastern mountain, when God comes down on it, it becomes something like a volcano that darkness descends. talks about that there's gloom and lightning and thunder. But not only in Exodus 19, but other places in the Old Testament record something very specific happened, that there was a massive earthquake. And you think about, you think about it. If you've never been to a megaplex with, you know, ultra mega sound, to, I mean, it would be frightening if you have done that. But to stand in the presence of a mountain that is not supposed to be spewing fire and smoke like a furnace and shaking and just to see the entire region begin to just shake apart. It left a huge cultural imprint on Israel. Now... Again, th think about what this is saying. It's, it's not saying, wow, it was as if the mountain quaked. It actually did. He's not saying it's as if the sea backed up at the presence of God. The psalmist is saying, it did. Now, here's what I want to ask you, because we, we're here gathered as a Christian assembly... Uh, we are looking at this psalm through the lenses of the New Testament, through Christian eyes. Even if you're not a Christian, you're in an assembly that's, do that's doing that together. If the Exodus was the biggest salvation event before Jesus, we as Christians would say the biggest salvation event was Jesus. Particularly the end of His earthly ministry, of His death and His resurrection... If the earth, not figuratively, literally responded to God, visibly, at the first greatest salvation event, did it do that again at the bigger event? If you look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says 
Matthew records, finally when Jesus gave up His Spirit, when He died, Matthew first says, the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. And then the next thing he says is that the earth quaked and the rocks split. Now, again, you put on the cynic hat and you could say, well, that might be sort of a literary device to drive across to us. It was a moment of giant importance, giant significance. And this is sort of a poetic way of saying that. But the only problem is that a few verses later, Matthew records that the Roman centurion who was on site and other Roman soldiers who were supposed to keep an eye on this Jesus were so awestruck when they saw this earthquake that they were convinced, whoever that is, he is some kind of deity. Because the earth just actually responded to him at this great moment of salvation. What about the resurrection? You read a few verses later in Matthew, it talks about that when the women, the first witnesses of the resurrection, the women... When they came to the tomb, guess what happened? There was a massive what? Earthquake. As the angel moves the stone. And Christ is resurrected. Now, what do you do with that? I mean, here we are, August 2011. We're buying school supplies. We're trying to keep air conditioning working. What what do I do with this? And the more I looked at this psalm, I thought, let's go back to square one, something that we like to talk about as a church. Something that we like to talk about as a church is that every passage should lead us to Jesus. And if you don't see the name Jesus or cross or salvation in a passage, you ought to ask yourself a couple of questions. First question is, what does this passage show me about me who needs saving, who needs redemption? And what does this passage show me about God who does the saving, who does the redeeming? And the more I looked at this psalm, I'll tell you one thing that came through loud and clear. Is that I don't tremble. Most of us don't tremble. And, and I say this not, not as a preachy, guilt-trippy application, but just as an application. The word God or Jesus, or Lord, occupies a lot of space in our speech, or texting, or Facebooking, is kind of like an exclamation point. So, you know, OMG, or Jesus, is kind of my way of like putting my little signature on what to say like, yeah! And we're, we're talking about the God to whom the physical earth, which has never sinned, that the literal soil and water and mountains and hills, which do not and cannot violate the laws of God, never have, never can, if, if I can personify them, they have the sense in the presence of God to respond, but we don't. Now, if you're bracing for the guilt trip, if, if that's what we're learning about ourselves, we who need the redeeming, here's what this shows us about God who does the redeeming is that wonder of wonders, He seeks us anyway. 
couple of thoughts from the end of the book of Isaiah. One is, God says, I sought a people, or I was found by a people who did not seek me. That my people, Israel, they found me. But did they find me because they had the good sense to say, wow, this God is amazing. He, he, he made us. He created us. He created the earth. He made us into a people. Let's run after Him. He said, oh, no, 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 no. It was the opposite of that. So I sought them. And you get to almost the end of Isaiah. This is the last chapter. It's chapter 66. Long book. God says this. I, you know, I dwell in heaven. The earth is my footstool. Are you going to make a house for me? You know, are you, are you going to make me a temple or a house that impresses me? And then God says this. Let me tell you whom I esteem and to whom I turn. I esteem people who are contrite and lowly in spirit and who tremble at my word. That's an amazing thing. To, to whom is, with whom is God impressed? People who tremble at His Word. We don't do that much. And yet, guys, part of understanding the gospel is that God goes after the one part of creation that ought to tremble most and does not to save us. That the reason that there's an earthquake outside of Jerusalem and the rocks are splitting open, the reason there's an earthquake at this tomb is because God goes after people who will not tremble. And that is good news. Because if He only went after the people who trembled, the church would be quite small. It would have a population of zero. Amazing. Now, think about this. God, over and over and over and over, He identifies Himself as the God, of, and this is in the psalm, the God of Jacob. He could identify Himself as the God of the planets, the God of infinite space and material or whatever, just something big and splashy and powerful, and He'll call Himself the God of Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson who was known as kind of a huckster. And God says, yes. You want to know who I am? I'm the God of Jacob. Calls himself that over and over and over again. So, all right, what is the psalmist showing about God and His people? What's he showing us about God and His people? Um, look at verse, verse 1. Here Again, the Exodus. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Now think about what the psalmist just said. He did not say that the geography of Judea became God's house, his dominion. What did he say? The people did. Now, the New Testament says that big time about the people of God, that we, we don't talk about some building being His house anymore or some building being His temple anymore. We're the house. We're the temple. We don't so much go to church as we are the church. 
But you hear that at the beginning of this psalm. Now, uh, here, let, me, let me tell you something I've never noticed. I feel like I say this every week. This is installment 493 of the preacher finally learning things that were right there the whole time because he finally slowed down a little bit. And there's way more to see, trust me. Installment 493. The psalm says, okay, why did the Red Sea recoil? Because God is there. Why did the Jordan River pile up? Because God is there. Why did the mountains and the hills shake? Because God is there. But when you read the accounts, is that what happened? In other words, when the Red Sea parted, is God visibly appearing on the banks of the Red Sea, the shore of the Red Sea? No. He is visibly appearing behind the people of God, putting Himself between them and the Egyptians. So who is right there when the sea recoils from God? The people are. When it says that the Jordan River flees from God, did God visibly appear at the banks of the Jordan River? If you read the account, it's in Joshua chapter 3. It's the people. In fact, get this. It says that the river didn't start piling up until the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant set their foot in the water. Then it flees when the people of God showed up. What about the end of this psalm? Verses 7 and 8. It says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. What is this talking about? Kind of famous miracle. When they were in the wilderness, the people are complaining and grumbling. This was not unusual for the people of God, as it is not unusual now. And they're concerned about their lack of water, and so God tells Moses to get water from this rock that would not naturally produce water, and that was the miracle. Now, again, the details. I thought that when he did that, Moses walked up to it and was supposed to say, bring on the water. And then when it started coming out, he could kind of say, all right, everybody, come on. And what he ended up doing was hitting it with his staff, and that cost him a trip into the promised land, another sermon. That's not what God commanded him to do. I want to read this. this, this if we will stop and listen, this is important. Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, God says, Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And did you catch that? It's not Moses the wonder worker, take your staff, not, don't make it your lucky whacking stick, walk over with your staff, and just, you know, I'm Moses, I do the miracles, yield water, but you assemble the entire congregation of God and then you speak to it, and it will do it in front of all the people. Do you hear that? That these great miracles, when the earth responded to God, they happened not so much because God was visibly appearing, He did on Mount Sinai, but it's when the people who are His abode 
are there in mass. So does this ever happen in the New Testament? Book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching. The authorities get wind of it, and they call them in on the carpet and say, you've got to stop doing that. They order them, do not preach about Jesus anymore. Peter and John come back to their friends, and they have a prayer meeting, and they pray, Lord, help us because we're going to keep preaching about Jesus. And then what does it say? The house where they were meeting was shaken. Is the house shaking because Peter and John are so good? They would be the first to tell you no. It's shaking because God, in His wisdom, decided, I'm going to let this house respond to where I dwell, which is in my people, as they assemble to pray. And the house literally shook. Again, what do, what do we do with this? And I want, to, I want to throw out a couple of applications. The first is this. If you feel cynicism really getting a foothold in your heart, or you may be sitting here and think, it ain't starting to get a foothold. It has, it's been like paying mortgage for five years. I, I am eaten up with skepticism. I am eaten up with indifference. Here's the reality. You are going to be tempted to withdraw from church. Because deep down, even though we want to be amazed by something, you may feel like there's nothing amazing there. There's nothing am- it, it reminds me of a scene of, in The Incredibles, the greatest animated movie ever made. There's a scene where Mr. Incredible, when he's still in citizen mode... He pulls up in his driveway, and he's had a terrible day, and he slips in the driveway, and he messes up his car because he's so strong, and he grabbed it the wrong way. And, uh, and he's, gonna, he's so mad, he's going to pick up his car and just throw it down the street. He's supposed to not go public as being a superhero. And uh, he picks up his car, and he looks, and there's a little kid at the end of his driveway on a bike with a big bubble, you know, bubble gum bubble. And uh, he sets it down, and he asks this kid, what are you looking at? Or no, what are you waiting on, kid? The kid said, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. And Mr. Incredible says, me too, kid. I mean, that, I mean there's something to that. If that's where you are, you, you may be extremely tempted to withdraw from the church. And what I want to say to you is this. I don't know that we will ever see a miracle like the ones described here, although they can happen. I mean, if revival came like we talked about a few weeks ago, you don't know what you might see. But it says in Ephesians that the church, this is Ephesians one twenty three, the church is the fullness of Him who fills everything. I'm not totally sure what all that verse means. But we can at least say this, that the universe cannot contain God because He made it. He is greater than the universe He created, but His fullness is not the universe. His fullness is the church with its problems and logistics and a community group that's ragged around the edges and liturgy and sacraments and officers. 
It is the fullness of Him who fills everything. And I would exhort you, if you're ever going to move from cynicism, I'm talking to me too, from cynicism to a, a wonderful trembling, you will have to be in the people of God. That is His dominion. That is His abode. The other thing is this. You may have someone in your life that God has really put on your heart and you're thinking, I mean, I know I need to tremble, but I want them to tremble. Good tremble. I mean, I, I care about me, so I need to tremble, but I care about them. I want them to tremble, but I can't make them tremble. I can't make me tremble. I would appeal to you for the same reason. If that's the case, do not try to minister to that person by keeping them away from the church. Like, whatever we do, do not go near a local church. A weirdo will talk to you. You may be asked to make a casserole or something. Like, if if we're ever going to connect with this person about God, keep them away from the local church. It is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Okay, problems and all. I would appeal to you, if there's someone that you care about, if they will come expose them to, draw them toward the people of God. Uh, let, let me end with this. This was several years ago. I want to say maybe it was 2004. Uh, Saturday Night Live, I think Luke Wilson was the host and the musical guest was YouTube. And if, if you've watched Saturday Night Live, like I think most of you have, which is wretched when you're in the Eastern Time Zone, but you might have done it anyway. Um, you know, at the end of the show, they're all gathered up on that central uh, stage and that, that uh, Saturday Night Live, real saxophone kind of theme music is playing and, and they, uh, they thank their host and they thank guests and all that and then they sort of finish out the show. Well, Bono is sitting on the edge of the stage when they're doing this with Luke Wilson and all of a sudden he just hops up and he runs over, would this be stage left? Is that what that would be? Let's call it stage left. He runs over to stage left where the musicians play and you hear the edge start to go, and it is, nothing sounds like that. That is the beginning of the song, I Will Follow. Not difficult chords, but nothing sounds like it, and they invented it. Well, he starts that, and the crowd goes nuts. Now, they're not supposed to perform a song during that time. So as they start into this song, Bono is pulling out all the stops. He's like up in the crowd and he's being naughty. And, you know, he's grabbing the camera and singing. He's just doing all the Bono stuff. And uh, finally toward the end of the song, he walks from over there and he walks up the steps of the stage. And the person standing there is Amy Poehler. You know the comedian Amy Poehler? She was on the cast for a long time. Now, I don't know Amy Poehler. She didn't return any of my calls this week. <laughs> Common courtesy, Amy. You might want to look into it. But uh, yeah, I would, I would think that somebody who has like been in the Chicago Improv and been on the cast of Saturday Night Live could be a very, very sarcastic, cynical kind of person. I don't know. But I, I could imagine that being the case. When Bono walked up the steps, she was there and she just went... She opened her arms, and he steps up, and as he's singing, there's a part in I Will Follow where Bono is just singing the words, I will, I will. He takes her like he's dancing, and he starts singing, I will, I will. 
And she's just hugging him and patting his back. And when he lets go, she's wiping tears out of her eyes. I'm going to cry talking about it. She's wiping tears out of her eyes. And I thought, it's, you know, it was such a great moment of somebody who, I mean, who is capable of profound sarcasm, seeing through everything, you know, debunking everything, was moved. Moved. Couldn't conceal it. And it wasn't a private moment. It was, it was when everybody was enjoying it. But she rubbed up against it. You know, we commune with God one-on-one. But I'm telling you, there's something about the people of God where you rub up against how amazing God actually is. When you hear that God is patient. Yeah, God, that's great. God is patient. And then you watch a community of people be patient with you for years and you start to feel it. And you realize that that did not originate with the people. It originated with the God of Jacob who is present with His people. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask as we continue our worship, that You would give us repentance. That You would turn us towards You and You would move us from indifference and cynicism and coldness of heart toward good awe and good fear and good trembling because You are a God who has all power and You are the God who seeks after sinners. And you are the God who sent your one and only Son. And we pray in His name. Amen.